This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book has an intriguing title, yet shares a personal journey for a family, one that was difficult, I'm sure, for the author to share. The title is No Longer on Pedestals, and the subtitle, A Powerful Story That Is Both Heartbreaking and Heartwarming. The underlying story is about the conflicts and the scandals that have plagued the Catholic Church, told from the perspective of the family who experienced it firsthand, a very unique perspective, needing to be told. And our author, Carol A. Coonert, is joining me from Missouri. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. This is a difficult story that you have shared, and yet one that is uh, hitting the news occasionally. Carol, tell me what in these 400 pages that you have penned was so important. Why did you want to share this particular story, and what is it about? Okay, I, it's about my, my brother, who I learned was a uh, pedophile priest. He had been molesting children, and I hadn't been aware of it. It was a complete surprise to me, but I trusted the church all along that they were handling it. And, but after decades of hanging on to my faith, that the church would do the right thing, I was really shocked into reality when my brother's death was celebrated with Archbishop Burke presiding at the funeral as if Father Christian was a revered priest instead of the demoted priest, child rapist life he lived. It was at that point that I felt the need to reach out to my brother's victims to apologize for all the pain that he had brought into their lives. The church sets the example to shame and blame the victims. So the victims' true stories are never communicated to the other faithful believers of the church. Now, maybe if these members heard my story, they would feel compelled to not only reach out to the victims, but also demand an overall change for the good in the Catholic Church. Uh, this is a difficult story because it isn't someone that is far removed from you. It was your, your family member. When you decided to share this story, uh, who did you want to reach? What was the, the desire to appeal to, and, and who did you think would, would benefit from your story? Well, I believe that, that the story would definitely appeal to all people who are victims of sexual abuse and their families, and especially if it was perpetrated by someone in the religious life. Now, I would think that inquiring minds would be interested to learn about a pedophile priest and how his criminal behavior was dealt with by his own family and friends, as well as the church leadership. Some who cannot believe that a priest would do such a thing might read the book to find fault with it. Since this is a new angle, because it's experiences from inside the family of the pedophile, there might be some curious minds. 400 pages, there had to have been a, some research that was involved. I mean, you were although family member observing from the outside to some degree, how much research did you have to do, and how long did it take to complete your research and write the book? Well, I had been living this. It's not a matter of researching as much. I had all, all kinds of documentation of my own that, for some reason, I just had saved over the years. And just to refer back to, so when I was the thought came to me about writing a book, I thought, well, I can do this because I have all this on hand that I can refer back to for when, what things happened and when. Well, that's, that's, okay. <laughs> that's okay. This is, a, this is a tough subject. You, when you say you have uh, documentation from way back, did that uh, go prior to your brother Norman entering the priesthood, or was it only from that point forward that you had uh, information to share? I didn't learn about this until... I, well, I was married and had children, and um, my my brother had sent me a or had called me one evening and said he was going to go on a sabbatical for six months, and I wouldn't be able to reach him during that time. 
he just he never said anything of what it was about. But after he got there, he sent me a letter and said that he was there working on some kind of uh, addiction or something that he had, and uh, he hoped that I wouldn't ask too many questions or anything. So that was the first. I had no idea what he was working on, what the problem was, none. And it definitely never entered my mind that he could have been a child molester. That was never in the picture. I thought possibly alcoholism or drugs or something like that. A very complicated, very complicated uh, story and complicated uh, setting to begin, to begin to confront your brother and ask him what's going on. Your sister and you also began to talk with Norman after he shared what was happening in his life. How did that, how did that conversation go? Very strange. Um, how I found out about him in the first place was through one of my children, my daughter. He had been um, taking her at a time we thought. My husband and I thought he was counseling her through some problems that she was having. Well, it turns out he was you know, doing all kinds of things with her that had we known, it would have been stopped immediately. Mm. And she finally, after years, told me what was going on and that he had been molesting these young boys. So that at that point, I talked to my sister about it. We asked our other children if they were all right, and then I contacted Norman and told him we knew his secret, and we wanted to, my sister and I wanted to talk with him, and we did for for an afternoon. We sat discussing everything, and um, I learned a whole lot of stuff at that point. He admitted a lot of things to me over the years, so it's not just I have documentations through letters and whatnot but uh, as well as from the archdiocese and different bishops and priests and whatnot that have, I would write them about my concerns and they sometimes would respond, sometimes they wouldn't. But that day with my sister was, um, and when we sat talking with him, was really an eye-opener. And, um, and at the end of it all, after he admits everything to us on his way out the door, he says, now, he, he told us that definitely you don't say a word about this to anyone because mm. you could cause scandal to the church if you if this came out in the public. So he took no, no responsibility to the fact that he did these things. That's what was scandalous. Very scary. And in addition to that, you have uh, talked about criminal investigations. Did that take place also in this incident or these incidences? The criminal investigations, yes. Um, they were, one victim did take him to court, and um, there were many victims that a different victim was why he was removed from ministry finally, but then this other one came along and he finally actually was going to take him to court. You, you have shared a lot of uh, information about the uh, investigations and also the fact that he would be taken to court. You also have shared the, the stance of those in leadership in the church, those who would be called his, uh, I guess, his bosses, his superiors, the archbishops and others. What did you discover uh, from their perspective or their reaction to what was going on? Their answer to me was always uh, pretty much just to say, this isn't yours to worry about. We're taking care of things. They wanted me to just back off and forget about it that, and trust that they were handling everything and doing the right thing, which is what I did. I'm a Catholic, a cradle Catholic, I was, and this was instilled in me from infancy on as I grew, you know, that, to... Um, trust the church, trust all, anyone in the religious life, they were right next to God in my eyes. Mm -hmm. And um, they just, you know, but when they finally ended up giving my brother this funeral as a priest in good standing, and Archbishop Burke himself had the um, funeral, that was, to me, just terribly wrong. And that's when I decided I needed to speak out. You mentioned destroyed clergy records. Was that regarding your brother or just in general that you're finding that, it? That was in general. In general, that's that, happening. That was in, yes, that was in general that um, every record was to be destroyed. That, that was a big news story that they were doing that. To, um, that anybody that had any records at their parishes, they were to destroy those or else send them back to the that place there in New Mexico, and they would see that they were destroyed, because that place eventually got shut down. I can't think right now when the date was, but they closed. Your brother died, uh, how, how old was he when he passed away? He was 
69. So not not an old man. I wouldn't, at least I'm getting close. I mean, I don't uh, don't like to give away my age, but that doesn't sound that old. Uh, did he die of, of unusual health uh, diseases, or was it just natural death? He, no, he did have his um, his kidneys and liver shut down. Oh, boy. But he was not sick for a long time with it. He was that whole, when this first came out about him in March of, of 04, he did, I found through different documentations that he had been traveling and, and doing things throughout that whole year. He was going around. And it wasn't until, I don't towards the very end, he died in October, the end of October, and about a month before that or so is when he, they said he kind of thought he had, he had eaten something that didn't agree with him, and then he went in the hospital, and they ran tests and everything, and, and the prognosis was very poor. He wasn't going to live more than a couple more weeks. Mm. That's how quick that happened. Incredible. One, he was cared for by the church the entire time. You mentioned one of the victims' names, Tim. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's his real name or not, but yes. how, how old was he? And uh, share a little of his life and how it's turned out. Well, he was 11 at the time that my brother abused him, actually raped him. He was an 11-year-old child. And um, he suffered for a long time with that and kept the secret. And he did get married, and he felt kind of that he had a, two children, and he felt like when the, the one boy got to the age that he was when he was abused, that may have triggered him to report what happened. And then he went to the authorities and reported it. And um, he had a difficult time at the very beginning. It's very frightening for these sexual abuse victims to come forward and tell what has happened to them because they're usually not believed. People scorn them and and they're made to feel even worse. But he did come forward and um, at that point he started to um, get a little bit better along the way. It took him a long time. And when my, my uh, daughter and a niece and I reached out at some point, you know, to... Uh, to the victims and, and to him, and we wanted to let him know that Norman was dying if he wanted to contact him or something. At that point on, he started to um, feel a little bit more hope. That, and uh, but he's still he's doing okay now. He's doing better, but um, but had a very difficult time. Is what it sounds very like. Very difficult. Sure. Yeah, these, and this is typical of all these abuse victims. My brother, for instance, told all his victims, all these young boys, and he said it to my daughter as well. That you can tell whoever you want to, about this. They're not going to believe you. You're just a kid. They'll believe me, the priest. Wow. And that's how he intimidated them. And so it took my own daughter years to be able to tell me, because I'm sure she feared I wouldn't believe her. You know, this is my brother she's talking about, and he's a priest. Hmm. So I really, really look up to these these survivors of these uh, clergy abuse. If they find the courage to come forward and report it. Definitely. And a big part of this book is is that I want all the Catholics out there, all the membership, there's a lot of them that refuse to believe this is happening, and they just deny it. And I think that's because it's too difficult to deal with. They don't want this. The church is very important to them, and they don't want something this horrible happening that they'd have to accept it and, and do something about it. So they just deny it. So I'm hoping that if people will read this story and and see what what I observed over the years, what happened with our family alone, this is one priest in particular, that they can um, perhaps get some of the truth that the church does its best to keep them from learning. Thank you for sharing your story. This is an important story for all people of faith, not just Catholics, but it is happening in the Catholic Church. Uh, at least that's hitting the news quite a bit. So if you are a person of faith or want to find out a little bit more about what has happened and transpired within the Catholic denomination, you can certainly access this book, 402 pages. You've done a wonderful job, Carol, of sharing your personal story, and I congratulate you on your your personal courage for sharing your story. Carol, this is an important read. How long did it take to complete? Well, this endeavor has taken me nine years. Nine years. Start to publication. As life seemed to regularly get in the way of my writing, I always put family things first, devoting only spare time to working on the book. And there were times that I would wonder if it was worth doing it, 
But then I'd see another priest abuse case on the news, and then I knew that my book mattered very much. And, and survivors' reports were finally being believed, and others were coming forward to report their own clergy abuse. Our silence, when people remain silent, that tells the church officials that we agree with how they are handling the clergy sexual abuse scandal. That same silence tells the victims that we just don't care about them, and that's that's very sad. The title of the book, again, is No Longer on Pedestals. And, of course, it's the story of the uh, sexual scandals inside the Catholic Church, and in particular inside your family, how it impacted you and your brother, who was a priest at the time. Thank you for sharing with me and sharing with my audience uh, your story. How do we get copies of your book, Carol? Well, the book is available at iUniverse.com, Amazon.com, BarnesandNobles.com. It's online worldwide, and it's available at all bookstores. They can... And the name of my brother, by the way, I don't know if I mentioned it, was Father Reverend Norman Henry Christian from St. Louis, Missouri, Archdiocese. Well, thank you for sharing that and having the courage to share his name. Uh, Carol's last name is spelled K-U-H-N-E-R-T, Kunert. Carol, thank you for joining me today, and best of luck with this book and for sharing your story. Our hat's off to you, and thank you again for your service. Thank you very much. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Parker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With Baby and Toddler Instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings from iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Venus... Don't go there. What Science and Religion Reveal About Life After Death. And our author, Michael T. Santini, joins me from California. And uh, Dr. Santini, welcome to the program, sir. Thank you, Jim. You have be here. You have a fascinating background, just from my own personal perspective. It takes an engineering mind to do a book and complete a book with the topic material that you have covered. You have an engineering background. Uh, you have a uh, personality, apparently, and from an education standpoint, that's rather structured to some degree. You have written a book uh, that delves into a very uh, wide-ranged topic, science and religion, and what it reveals about life after death. How did you come to the inspiration to write this book, Dr. Santini? Well, it's just um, came to me after getting my doctorate degree I, uh, in theology. I had worked as an aerospace engineer my entire career and uh, focusing mainly on building spacecraft uh, for um, various government programs. So I was very familiar with outer space uh, and very familiar since I grew up enjoying astronomy and stuff. I actually pursued the aerospace careers. Uh, because I had a passion for it. So I had a very strong background in understanding cosmology and astronomy, and then I uh, later in life decided to go to uh, seminary. After you know becoming a Christian, I uh, was um, had a rebirth of my life around 40 years old. I was, didn't attend church very often, but um, essentially got saved and then started reading the Bible, went to seminary toward the latter part of my aerospace career at, at Lockheed Martin and Boeing. And then when I retired, went on to get my doctorate, and uh, when I completed, I felt this inspiration to take a 
close look at the planet Venus as um, as a place of possible perdition, you know, a place where people would go who, you know, didn't uh, get saved, who were, you know, who were um, uh, sent, apart, uh, sent away from God after the, white, after the final judgment. So I began to examine that aspect of eschatology, and it was remarkable how, you know, between my science background and my theology background, how these scriptures aligned so well with the planetary environment of Venus. And so I decided I needed to put a book together uh, to tell that story. And I actually, in writing the book, put together uh, science and religion from the beginning of time all the way till now. In other words, there's, you know, science and religion are very closely related in my, in my writing. There is not a lot of um, uh, disparity. And I think that's really the intent the ultimate intent is for science and religion to work together. It's just that the people, the men of science and religion, don't work together. But I believe that ultimately it's God's intent for science and religion to be, at least at the top, in agreement on what ultimate truth is. I think that's a that's a, a great and needed part of faith and uh, the faith, uh, faith uh, structure. I talked with an author last week that was concerned because he grew up in a church environment that didn't have a lot of the, I would say, the uh, logical approach to faith. It was more emotion-based. And uh, what you have done is taken a very difficult subject, science, and have married it with faith. And uh, how did you, uh, how did you discover, or did you did you imply that Venus was? a part of Scripture, or that there was uh, something related to Venus that possibly could be included in an interpretation of Scripture? Oh, um, one of the lead, lead things I have that un- uncovered this was um, um, that Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Uh, you know, and we say the prayer, Our Father, who art in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. It became, became clear to me that earth, the planet earth, was going to be the ultimate uh, place of you know that, that in the end time that that he- that heaven was going to come to earth you know that, that the kingdom of God was going to ultimately be on the planet Earth that God was going to come back to Earth and restore the planet to the time of the Garden of Eden and that we would all enjoy uh, in eternity our time on Earth so that Earth is going to be you know that heaven and Earth are not ethereal places but the fact that heaven and Earth are physical places in the universe so what clued me in was the fact that uh, you know, a lot of theology was pointing to the universe just evaporating and God having this kingdom, and that really wasn't true. That the scriptures are really telling me, and I have it in my book, that 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 Earth was going to be the ultimate place where God was going to come down to, where uh, people were going to actually have an eternal destiny was on our very planet of Earth. And now that's not happening yet. That's happening after after you know Jesus comes back after the end of time and the uh, the end of um, uh, this age, this church age, uh, we're going to have heaven on earth. And so the Bible clearly shows us, or at least in my view, shows us that heaven is going to be on earth, which then tips you off as to, well, where, if heaven is on earth, then where is the people who don't make it, the people who, you know, are not saved, you know, um, where are they going to go? You know, the scripture does the say, say that in Revelation 20:15 that anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown in the lake of fire. And the question becomes, well, where is this lake of fire? If mm-hmm. we're on Earth, where does this place actually exist? And so when I started examining the planet Venus, I started realizing that all the scriptures aligned, you know, the planetary conditions of that planet started aligning with the condition, with some of the descriptions of, of hell and the lake of fire. Interesting. So that's what clued me in, is it's, it's actually within the solar system, I guess, is the answer there. Yes, within the solar system, and, and something that we can relate to, at least uh, as humans. Uh, that's that's certainly an unusual and novel approach. You also have talked about Soviet spacecraft in the 70s and 80s. What did they discover about Venus when they deployed vehicles to land on, on that uh, planet? Yeah, um, that's an interesting point, Jay. You know, um, the Americans never really led the charge to Venus. It really was the Soviet Union that took the took the lead in, in, in sending a lot of spacecraft to Venus. They have spacecraft that have landed on the planet that have taken pictures of the surface. Um, they're the ones who uh, were able to reveal the high sulfur content on the planet. 
Um, so the Soviets have done a lot of work. I mean, the United States did, did have, um, later on, the Magellan spacecraft was able to take a lot of imaging, and so the, the actual topography was done by the United States for the most part. But uh, the Soviets contributed heavily to uncovering some of the environmental conditions of Venus. And so I mention them in my book as being very big contributors. Fascinating. This is not a um, standard, understood, or accepted idea. Is this something that is unique to your studies, or have you come across other writers who have uh, maybe hypothesized this same conclusion? Um, I've run across lots of a few science and religious guys who try to blend science and religion from a cosmological perspective. You know, that the beginning of time uh, spoken about uh, by people like Stephen Hawkins and stuff relates to, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I have run across people who tie science and religion together in a cosmological sense. Yes. Um, I'm really the first person to actually say that, you know, from an end-time perspective, that Venus will be, you know, hell in the lake of fire. That, that was really my little contribution to the science aspect of this thing. Um, and so I'm bringing it to the forefront now. Have you gotten feedback from others in the ministry or in church faith-related institutions? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, and I, I sort of anticipated, I'm a, I'm a pastor, uh, an Assembly of God pastor, and I've cast my book out and talked to my peers, other pastors, uh, the heads, my, my presbyter and other heads of my church, and and they have a relatively cool reception to it, I'll uh-huh. say, because, you know, their their theology, you know, is one that doesn't necessarily think that the earth is going to abide forever. They have different ideas. They're set in their theology. Now, none of them have ever said this is, you know, no, you know, they're, they're, they, they've not threatened to take my license away or anything. I, <laughs> I mean, well, they said, good. hey, it's a good idea. <laughs> I mean, we've never thought of this before is what they're saying to me. Well, sure. They were accepting it. They said, you know, this is a great idea. We've never thought of this before. It's interesting is what they're telling me, but but they're not really receiving it with open arms because they've lived with their own theologies most of their lives. Yes. It's not necessarily a, uh, a, a theory or an idea that would contradict Scripture or be a heret- heret- uh, heretical from uh, maybe a, a mainstream standpoint. It's just different. Absolutely, yes. No, I would say that my greatest reception has been a young, amongst younger people, people who in their late teens and early 20s, who are still searching around trying to figure out what it's all about. You know, Christianity, you know, is it real? What's the, is the Bible really telling the truth? How, why is science and religion so much at odds with each other? I found a great audience, Jay, amongst the younger crowd. Fascinating. More open-minded. And I think also, just from my perspective, the younger audience is looking for some answers, not just theory. And uh, your book, although it may be theoretical in some aspects, has many facts included in it. How long did it take you to research this and get it into print? Uh, Three full years. Three full years. I mean, we're talking six, seven days a week I worked on this book. It was my only project. Um, and I, I had, I was blessed with the opportunity not to have anything else going on in my life. I had gotten my degree. I had a house to live in. I had, you know, my bills were paid, uh, and I didn't really require any to have a job. I was retired from aerospace. And so I was able to dedicate full time writing this book for over the course of three. So I researched very heavily for the first six or eight months. I began writing, uh, editing, writing, editing, and, uh, Probably uh, just this last uh, November, I brought it to iUniverse for publication. They went through uh, with some editing for me. They did a great job on, on doing a line edit and was able to get this thing out. And, and it took us like a three-year cycle, Jay. Incredible. Do you think this is a book that would appeal to more than just church-going folks? Is this something that maybe has a little broader appeal, or is it a little narrower in its concept and uh, purpose? Interesting interesting question. I had a review done by Blue Ink. I had three reviews done by Blue Ink. And at the end of the Blue Ink review, uh, I'm going to give you the very sentence that this lady says. She says, nonetheless, due to Santini's meticulous arguments, all sorts of readers will find his book intriguing. Believers, non-believers, scholars, and non-scholars. So 
she found my scientific and uh, biblical evidence to be strongly convincing and that the idea of the lake of fire coming to be located on Venus is fascinating. And that, and that she thought everybody, uh, you know, believers and non-believers, scholars and non-scholars alike, would like the book. Wonderful. So that wasn't my opinion. It was the opinion of an independent reviewer. Wonderful commendation in its own right. Are you planning to do a follow-up to this particular subject matter and uh, produce another book? Uh, I am. I am. I would like to write a book on uh, where I believe heaven is right now. Um, I haven't finished formulating the ideas on that yet, but I'm a little bit, I'm kind of holding back a little bit, Jay, just to see how successful this first book is, whether I can build an audience or not. And uh, because I think I've got a very good uh, uh, topic for my second book, because I spoke essentially about hell in the first book, and I want to speak about heaven in the second book. And like I said, I think it'll be unique. I think it'll be fascinating. I've got some what I think is um, some really uh, good ideas about uh, heaven on earth, what it's going to be like when people come back to earth, where, where that heaven is right now in the solar system or in the in the celestial sphere. It's going to be a great book, but I'm kind of going slow on it now because I want to see how people receive this first book. Very well done. The title again is Venus. Don't go there. What Science and Religion Reveal About Life After Death. Provocative title and great subject material. Our author, Michael T. Santini, Dr. Santini. Where do my listeners get a copy of your book? Uh, it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and the iUniverse uh, bookstore. Possibility you are either developing or, or have developed a website yet. I do. On the back of my, on the back of my book, I, I, I um, refer people to my it's called planetearthministries.com. Um, it's my website that I set up. Uh, it's a ministry I set up for people who read the book uh, and are interested in more information and are interested in science and religion working together. And it's sort of a bridge, Jay. I, I, the website is, is really uh, my personal ministry that people who want to come to faith or are interested possibly. I don't. It's not a church. It's not a place. I don't have any church. I don't have a denomination that I... I currently lead. I don't have any parishioners, but this this uh, ministry, this PlanetEarthMinistries.com, my website, the homepage, serves as a place where people can go who are interested in more information about my book and possibly pursuing a spiritual or a Christian life. Phenomenal. Thank you, Dr. Santini, for joining me today and sharing the story of this very interesting concept and idea. Venus, don't go there. What Science and Religion Reveal About Life After Death. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. You're welcome, Jay. Have a great day. My pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Parker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled, Who's Behind the Mask? I don't know if it's about robbery or what it's about, but it says, oh, there's a subtitle, Becoming Who You've Always Been, But We're Never Allowed to Be. Ah, that makes sense now. Our author, Alan McRae, joins me from somewhere near Phoenix, Arizona, in the United States. Welcome, Alan, to the program. Thank you. Delighted to be here. 
encouraging or a, a suspenseful cover. It has a mask on it and, of course, uh, obviously refers back to the title. Share with my listeners why this title and what is your background that caused you to write this book? What's the inspiration? My background is in marriage, family, and child therapy as well as pastoral counseling. Um, I have been working with people for a long time and uh, doing a lot of seminars and workshops helping people to discover who they really are. We live in a culture that tends to want to shape us into its own mold, whether it's our family, whether it's our school, our workplace, uh, our church environment, tends to want to shape us into its image. So oftentimes we take on a persona that is not truly who we are, and we live in that at somewhat of a subconscious level. And the thing that I have discovered is that when people really wake up or become aware of how they were originally designed, uh, they find themselves much happier, much more productive, much more creative. Their relationships improve, and even their personal health improves. That's true. You have uh, composed or written this book and placed it in three specific section. Section one, I, I'm assuming, refers to your internal makeup, your internal world, and other things. The Stain of Shame is an interesting title for a chapter, chapter five. How does that impact us? What causes us to put up barriers in that particular aspect of our life? Probably the first thing that um, comes into play is when we're needing the approval of other people. And that's pretty innate in us and in childhood because we need the approval of our caregivers. Um, our caregivers are the ones that give us uh, comfort. They give us food, clothing, shelter. Uh, early in our childhood, they're kind of like gods to us because we feel like they hold life and death in the palm of their hand. And um, so consequently, we tend to live life as those people want us to live it, and we shape ourselves into the mold or image. And so internally, we often deny who we truly are. Uh, maybe we have a caretaker that is very serious, very analytical, very particular. Everything's got to be in its place. Everything needs to be perfect, so we work very hard uh, to do that, but maybe our personality is much more spontaneous, uh, a little more um, uh, creative in the sense that um, our world is not perfect around us in the terms of what others might expect, but we tend to live our world uh, by the way the person that takes care of us, and then that causes us to deny a part of our personality, and uh, that gets repressed. And so consequently, we find ourselves living differently than how we were really created to live. Now, the idea of personality goes back many thousands of years or hundreds of years to 400 B.C. when Hippocrates uh, basically outlined what he perceived as the personality traits. What are those and how do they get described in today's world? Yes, yes and you're absolutely right. Hippocrates began to observe the behavior of his patients and he kind of noticed that some looked at the world through um, rose-colored glasses and everything was bright and everything was wonderful and life was to be enjoyed. And he gave them a, a term. He called them uh, sanguine personalities. He used some of the uh, language of the body since he was a physician. Sanguine actually means blood, life. And these are the people that really brought life uh, to the party. You can't have a good party without a few sanguines mixed in. People that just enjoy life. Mm. In our modern day language, um, it's been changed to uh, the DISC profile, D-I-S-N-C. So the I stands for influencer. In uh, Hippocrates' language, that would have been the sanguine. They're very influential. They're very fun-loving. They want life to be fun. They probably coined the phrase, are we having fun yet? That because sounds like people I know, want yes. to turn everything into, everything into fun. Doesn't mean they're not productive, they just want it to be fun. 
The other group that he noticed were the uh, very, what he called, choleric personalities, uh, very domineering, very in charge. Um, they saw the world as a place to be conquered. Um, so to them, winning is more important than anything else. And these people are wired to be in charge. And in the DISC profile, uh, that stands for direct or dominant. These people tend to be very direct in their communication. Uh, Nike's commercial, Just Do It, is a very choleric, high-D dominant slogan, Just Do It. And I might say, if you have time to do it, or would you do it, very indirect. The D, very direct. Mm. Then the other group that he noticed was those that were very meticulous, um, always looking for perfection. They, the world, um, everything should be have a place and everything should be in its place. Very analytical. These are the people that want all of the details before they can make a decision. And in the uh, DISC language, um, they are referred to as very compliant. They tend to live by the rules of life. And in uh, the language of Hippocrates, he called them melancholies. Mm -hmm. And um, seeing, and, and that's a term we're probably a little more familiar with in our culture. And it's always about somebody that's very serious, may, maybe even appear to be a little depressed, uh, in a melancholy mood is, is what we would call that today. But these are the people that are very analytical, very accurate. These are the kind of people that we need in our life when, uh, when things are on the line. And they're the ones that write all of our big, thick textbooks. Um, you can tell them my book, I'm not that analytical because mine's pretty thin compared to what a high C personality or melancholy personality would write. Then the other one that he identified was what he called the phlegmatic personality. Uh, the disc language uses the letter S for that, meaning steady. These are the easygoing, very methodical, uh, slow-paced uh, personalities in our culture. They're often labeled as lazy. And one of the things I point out very quickly is that is a character disorder, not a personality disorder. Right. These people have the lowest energy of all the personalities. Your D and I are much higher energy. The S and C are much lower. So this, the S personality is not necessarily uh, lazy, but they are slower. They walk slower. They tend to even talk slower. They're very methodical. They, they can be very, very productive. They like doing one thing at a time. They don't like you giving them a big list of things to do. That mm -hmm. emotionally overloads them. But boy, they, they are often the most productive of all the personalities because they tend to stay on track better than the other personalities. So that's just a quick overview. And then there's combinations. Um, there's natural combinations and unnatural combinations, um, some that work together better than others. And there's no evidence that we're ever born with a conflicting personality. But this is where we oftentimes put on the mask, trying to be somebody that we're not, to please the people in our world. And uh, so the whole book is about learning to become who you are and being able to live that out as effectively as possible and be very productive. Would you call these uh, personality traits, are they uh, genetic in nature, part of that uh, DNA, or are they learned, affected things that are part of our life? Our natural personality styles are genetic. We are born with them. Generally, when we have people that can't find their personality style, we will look at their parents um, and see some of the mixture from the parent. Sometimes it'll skip a generation like other genetics, and uh, it'll, we maybe look at the grandparents. But generally, we can find that makeup from, um, from the parents, and it is genetic. Now, the learned behavior is when we're operating outside of our personality, and we learn the characteristics of the other. 
And there's two, two, two fields of thought on this. One is when we're doing it on purpose. That is a coping style. Mm-hmm. When we're doing it and not know we're doing it, that's what we call masking. And I, I go into a section in the book where I identify 10 different um, scenarios that can produce masking. Um, when, and that generally takes place, generally young, very young in our childhood. But then in adulthood, for instance, I'm a high ID personality, very sanguine, uh, very choleric. I can be the melancholy, detailed person for a little while, but it really drains my energy. Right. And when I'm having to function in that mode, I don't function there very long. I have to go back and do something that's fun, get my energy level back up so I can refocus. Just like when I was writing this book, um, writing it was fun. Editing it was a nightmare uh, for me. So (laughs) that's something I hire other people to do because I have no energy for that. I can relate to Uh, that. just, Just writing it, energy levels high. When I do my seminars, energy levels high. I can go all day long and often do. But when it comes to the detail work, it is exhausting because that's not my personality. Now, to a high C, the, the, uh, that personality, detailed stuff gives them the same energy that the other work gives to me. So we find that place, that zone, that, that place that gives us the energy. And when our passion and purpose and, and behavioral personality, behavioral style all come together, that is convergence. That's when we are functioning at our highest level and we're the most productive, we're the happiest, and we're the healthiest when we're in that place. Now, what you've described in the uh, high I personality strengths and weaknesses sort of fits people in my industry and probably me. I have been accused by my neighbors and friends as being ADHD or whatever that is. I yeah. do have attention issues, but I'm a very creative individual, and communication style is uh, usually rapid, and sometimes my listening skills are a little weak. So you've described a lot of the uh, characteristics of people I know in your book. How long did it take to complete this, Alan? This is uh, several years of just doing um, seminars, workshops, counseling, working with people in various cultures, had the opportunity to teach this material in 15 different countries, cross-section of cultures, and it's just always exciting uh, to see that uh, we are all made in the same image. All of us have these characteristics at some level or another and in some mixture. So I worked on this um, diligently off and on for a couple of years. Uh, again, my high, high personality, um, I can't stay focused on it for very long at a time. <laughs> but uh, and this is an interesting thing. He said you'd often been accused of being ADD or ADHD. Even the government tells us that ADD and ADHD is misdiagnosed 80% mm-hmm. of the time. And the reason is a lot of high eye personalities are diagnosed uh, as ADD or ADHD because they do have uh, trouble with staying focused. But it's two different things. There is a legitimate diagnosis of ADD or ADHD. But just diagnosing a high eye personality as ADD, if you give them the medication for the ADD and they don't have it, the medication just turns them into a zombie. Mm, right. If they truly have ADD or ADHD, guess what? The medicine works. <laughs> Incredible. Fascinating stories in your book and, and uh, outlines of uh, not only the topic but also the content. If you were to introduce this to someone, what's the best way to describe your book? Is it one that is conversational in style or clinical? It's a little mixture of both. I wanted enough clinical in there for people to give it validity because oftentimes this material is looked at, the disc material is often looked at as pop psychology. Um, The reason I know that is because when I was first introduced to it, that's what I said it was. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> but actually, and, and I state this in my book, it literally transformed my life. I was I was a pastor at an early age. We did ministry most of my life. But in my early age, I was an angry, I, I was driven by anger. I was, I was an angry husband, I was an angry father, and to be honest, I was an angry pastor. I was just angry in general. And it really came across, and I, I went back to graduate school, I got two master's degrees, uh, an honorary doctorate degree, um, trying to find out what in the world was going on with me. And it was after I was introduced to the personality material that I really became who I have always been, but was never allowed to be. And the not allowing to be me is what was driving the anger, and I didn't even know it, because it was at a very subconscious level. So I've had the, I've had the privilege um, of, of seeing literally hundreds of people, if not thousands of people, literally transformed um, by getting an understanding of how they were wired, how they were created, what their makeup is. And unfortunately, there are people that really struggle because in their childhood they had to become so many different people to try to survive and not or to survive or to get released from abuse they kept trying to become the person that the abuser wanted them to be rather than allowing them to be who they are. Readers, this is an important and it, book, and you should get a copy of it. The title again is Who's Behind the Mask? Become Who You've Always Been But Were Never Allowed to Be. Our author, Alan McRae. Alan, where can my listeners get a copy of your book? Uh, it is available at Amazon, and uh, it's also available in, in the Kindle edition. Um you can go to my website if you want to order directly at alanmccray.com. Uh, you can order the book through there. Um, those those are the media that is available in, in, at, this, at this time. Do you still have a website, uh, lifeimpactllc.com? Yes, they're both the same, LL, lifeimpactllc and alanmccray.com. Fabulous. Same website. Fabulous. Thank you for joining me today and sharing the background story of this important book and a great way to understand ourselves and in a simplified and yet clinical manner. Thank you, sir, for sharing your story. Thank you. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.